Support for LAist comes from FX, presenting Shogun. Set in the year 1600, Lord Yoshi Toronaga is fighting for his life as his enemies unite against him. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada, Cosmo Jarvis, and Anna Sawai. Emmy eligible in all drama series categories. On Inheriting, Bao Trong was born in the U.S., but he longs for Vietnam, a country his father left behind. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. So how does he tell his dad that? Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. LAS Studios. Hey, it's Antonia Cerejido, and this is Imperfect Paradise, a show about hidden worlds and messy realities. Today, we are bringing you a new kind of episode, what we're calling an imperfect inquiry, in which I talk to a thinker, expert, or relevant voice who can help make sense of some complicated questions and issues. A lot of the same complicated questions and issues that have come up over and over on Imperfect Paradise. To kick it all off, I spoke with Alufemi Taiwo, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University and author of Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else. There was something that I encountered in organizing spaces, which is people being concerned about which kinds of people were centered in organizing spaces, which sorts of people were deferred to, whether they had the right gender or racial background. Professor Taiwo argues in his book that identity politics, not the idea of them, but in practice, have not delivered on creating deeper equity. This general story that emerges of identity politics coming to be under the control of a privileged few, even within the politics of marginalized populations. On this episode, we get into Professor Taiwo's ideas as a way of getting into some of the larger, sometimes almost existential questions on our show. Questions like, how will the next generation of Latino politicians come to power in the shadow of the Nuri Martinez scandal? How should companies try to engage on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion? And so many other questions. All of that coming up on Imperfect Paradise. On our show so far, we have often considered the thorny yet fruitful issue of identity politics. It's something that I actually love about California and the U.S. There is a deep and constantly evolving conversation about how our identities shape our experiences. It's something I really appreciate when I'm visiting family in Argentina or the times I've traveled internationally to places that are and feel more homogeneous and where the question of identity actually comes up less often. There's an actual open and vibrant discourse in the U.S. about how people of different races, ethnic backgrounds, and gender have different levels of privilege and access to resources. It's something that we explicitly explore on Imperfect Paradise. But a question that tends to haunt me, as someone whose whole career has been steeped in examining identity politics as a journalist, and as someone who, let's be real, sometimes is easily haunted, is how does this acknowledgement of difference actually impact people's lives, especially people who are most disadvantaged or oppressed. In Professor Taiwo's book, Elite Capture, he writes a phrase that I can't stop thinking about. Identity politics have not stopped police murders or emptied prisons. He goes on. Identity politics has, however, equipped people, organizations, and institutions with a new vocabulary to describe their politics and aesthetic. 
As we'll learn more in depth, Professor Taiwo isn't saying there's a problem with identity politics in and of themselves. But he thinks that identity politics have been hijacked, corrupted. I was very excited to explore these ideas with Professor Taiwo. In the first part of our interview, we get into the concepts of the book. And in the second part, we talk about how the concepts apply to some of the series we've explored on Imperfect Paradise. Dr. Taiwo, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Professor Taiwo received his PhD in philosophy at UCLA in 2018. I never expected to end up in LA. He grew up the son of two Nigerian immigrants. I grew up in a fairly conservative section of Ohio. Hadn't spent much time outside of Ohio and Indiana. He got his undergraduate degree at Indiana University, or IU, a campus in Bloomington, Indiana, I have visited. It's like very, like, Gilmore Girls. <laughs> That's how I would describe it. <laughs> That's probably pretty accurate. Yeah. And even though IU is in one of the rare progressive parts of Indiana, for a self-described lefty, like Professor Taiwo, L.A. was exciting. Being in a place where there was more outward left politics was definitely something different, definitely something that I took to and was interested in learning more about and participating more in union politics and anti-war politics and in Los Angeles politics. This was the early 2010s, and Barack Obama was just elected for his second presidential term. The 2010s in general, there was an enthusiasm around identity politics, enthusiasm around a kind of politics of recognition and representation, right? So if we have the right sorts of people in positions of power politically, or maybe even on corporate boards, if we have the right sorts of people in positions of power within our organizing spaces, we can expect the right kind of political direction, political leadership, and all of the above. Meaning that if the people in leadership roles, in general, were reflective of the constituents represented when it comes to race, ethnicity, and gender, then the needs of communities would be better addressed. And in progressive organizations and political groups, often the default strategy was to listen to the most affected or center the most marginalized. It was something Professor Taiwo saw in his own circles. Over years of participating, there was something that I encountered in organizing spaces, which is people being concerned about which kinds of people were centered in organizing spaces, which sorts of people were deferred to, whether they had the right gender or racial background or spoke the right language. It seemed to him that the person who always got the last word, or who people considered most qualified to address issues of equity, were those who were perceived as the most oppressed. Something about this practice didn't fully sit right with him, but he wasn't yet able to fully articulate why. At some point in graduate school, you know, I was doing this kind of weird historical unguided survey and just trying to find all the weirdest leftists that I could. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that. I want to know more about that process. What was your methodology? I would basically citation hop. So I would start with histories of, for example, radical reconstruction. So there's this whole segment of really progressive politics that happened in the wake of the Civil War. There was 
all kinds of cross-racial unionism. There were attempts to change the structure of marriage law. There were attempts at land redistribution. There was really serious energy for really progressive politics that a lot of people were putting time, energy, sweat, tears, and, and literally blood into. And I would read, you know, an account of that. And then the historian would cite some other thing that happened 20 years later. And I would go read an account of that. You know, and I ended up in all these weird pockets getting to learn about all kinds of stuff that, you know, was very difficult to learn in school even then. And that's when he came across the Combahee River Collective. The concept of identity politics was theorized, popularized by a group of queer Black feminists, the Combe River Collective. They formed in Boston in the 70s. They were trying to think through these questions of how their particular location in this broader economic and political system that we all live in should inform, you know, what political problems they take up, how they prioritize different sorts of things they could get involved in, so on and so forth, Right. They put out a statement in 1977 stating, quote, the focusing on our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity, as opposed to working to end somebody else's oppression, end quote. They didn't mean that as queer Black women, they were only going to work with other queer Black women. They did not mean that as queer Black women, the only political issues that anyone should attend to are those that affected their group. And in fact, you know, I think it would be fair to characterize them as meaning the opposite of that. They wrote this manifesto in part as a response to another prominent strain of politics within the women's liberation movement, which was the feminist separatist movement that advocated for delinking of women and women's issues from non-women's issues. In other words, they didn't like how certain organizations would only fight a narrow interpretation of the feminist fight and not incorporate racial justice or class justice as part of the strategy. They saw some in the feminist movement even taking an isolationist stance, which meant separating themselves from men and also an emerging political movement of trans women. In the extreme case, a kind of like literal geographical physical separation of women from non-women. They were resisting that and expressing a disagreement with that political perspective and using this idea that they were introducing of identity politics to say, we can use our identity to, you know, take into account what we would be good at addressing and what people like us would be able to contribute to an overall cause that is broader than our group. That's how they understood identity politics, and that's how they advocated for it. And I think solidarity with other sorts of people was part of the point of why they bothered thinking through this concept in the first place. Here's Barbara Smith, one of the founders of the Combahee River Collective, talking to scholar Joseph R. Fitzgerald. And it was a perspective that really believed in coalition work and did not dismiss people based upon the fact that they were not exactly the same kind of people that we were. That's the kind of energy that I want to learn from. That's the kind of thinking that I want to learn from. And I think, you know, it would serve a lot of other people as well. 
When we come back, Professor Taiwo gets into how he thinks the mission of identity politics laid out by the Combahee River Collective got hijacked by elites. That's coming up on Imperfect Paradise. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash paradise, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash paradise now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash paradise. Support for Elias comes from FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. Emmy eligible in all limited series categories. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com fyc. We're back. This is Imperfect Paradise. I'm Antonia Cerejido. When we left off, Professor Olufemi Taiwo was explaining how he came to understand identity politics when he was pursuing his PhD at UCLA. There was a second critical concept that Professor Taiwo came across during grad school. So I actually came across the idea of elite capture reading social science. So a lot of policy researchers who work for multinational institutions, for example, you know, if you check out World Bank reports, they'll describe this phenomenon where they commission an aid project. We're going to disperse however many million dollars to this district in order to improve sanitation in southwestern India, for instance. And they disperse the dollars and they do a kind of post-mortem investigation, and they find that a lot of dollars ended up in a few rich guys' houses and not a lot of sanitation ended up in the community. And so they try to describe that sort of general problem of people who were previously advantaged steering resources, in this case dollars, towards you know their own kind of private benefit out of a pool of resources that was originally meant for a much larger group. Professor Taiwo says he realized that the version of identity politics that he had seen played out both in his personal life and also on the broader political stage often fell prey to elite capture. 
an example actually from Barbara Smith, who is one of the founders of the Combe River Collective, describing years later why she stopped being involved with LGBTQ politics. And she felt that the general energy for queer politics that had at one time been a broader set of goals for liberation had become overly focused from her perspective on the goal of marriage equality. Mm -hmm. And she felt that that focus in turn represented the kind of political hegemony of white gay men who had more reason to pick that as a kind of singular organizing goal than maybe other groups within that broad umbrella. And care about like property transfer and things like that. Exactly. Whether we're talking about literal dollars being taken by an advantaged group of people or whether we're talking about the agenda of a political movement, um, something more ephemeral, something less countable, being steered by an advantaged view. Either way, there's a general story that emerges of politics coming to be under the control of a privileged few, even within the politics of marginalized populations. Four years after graduating in 2022, Professor Taiwo would publish a book that was the culmination of years of research and thought on the subject, Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else. I want to understand how Professor Taiwo's ideas relate to some of the stories we've reported on this show. So one of the stories that we did was about the L.A. City Council tape scandal. I was the first person to interview Nuri Martinez, the city council president who said all those things on the tape after that happened. What's interesting about her is that she came from a very working class family. She cares a lot about issues of class and she cares a lot about being Latina. Yeah, yeah. For those who haven't listened to the series or aren't familiar with the tape scandal, in 2021, three Latino L.A. city council members, including then president of the city council, Nuri Martinez, and a labor leader, Ron Herrera, were surreptitiously taped in a meeting where they were talking about redistricting. A year later, the tape would be leaked. In it, the former council president is heard saying racist, disparaging remarks, and the four politicians are heard talking about redistricting in crude, racialized terms. One of the concerns that arose around the tapes was that the impression was that the Latino politicians were willing to advance their cause at the expense of other identity groups— specifically Black Angelinos. I do think that one direction that identity politics has gone in the last few decades, the last couple of generations, has been in this direction of emphasizing kind of intra-group solidarity over and above, and maybe in some cases as a substitute for inter-group solidarity. Former Council President Nuri Martinez told me that her politics come from her lived experience. She felt that a lot of the critiques of her politics came from people who didn't actually understand her experience. And so I identify with these things. These are things I want to fix because I, I live them. I know what it feels like to be poor. I know what it feels like for your mom to lose that good pain, that good $15 an hour job. I know what it feels like. I lived it. Or not to know how to speak English. I know what that feels like. I lived all that. So I'm not going to get drawn into these politics of people who often don't have the same lived experience. Just because you're some fancy writer, 
you've written a book or a white paper and you're going to come and tell me how to lead. I don't take well to that. In his book, Professor Taiwo writes a very provocative critique of the kind of identity politics that the former council president is laying out, in which her experiences of trauma and oppression are guiding her decision-making. He writes in his book that, quote, oppression is not a prep school. He further breaks it down. That I have experienced my share of traumatic experiences is not a card to play in gamified social interaction or a weapon to wield in battles over prestige. It is not what gives me a special right to speak, to evaluate, or to decide for a group. It is a concrete, experiential manifestation of the vulnerability that connects me to most of the people on this earth. It comes between me and other people not as a wall, but as a bridge. I want to know if Professor Taiwo thinks there's any merit in being represented politically by someone who shares markers of your own identity. What about the importance of voting for a politician who has similar identity to their constituents? Yeah, I don't think that's important at all. I mean, maybe not zero, but pretty close to zero. The sorts of people that end up on a ballot have made a compromise somewhere. And the question is whether or not those compromises are ones we can all live with. Um, But at the end of the day, political offices are vehicles of power, of a certain kind. And what matters above all is what the person in those offices intends to do with that power. So I don't want to pretend like gender or race is going to be totally irrelevant to what a given congressperson or state legislator might want to accomplish. But I think there's so many other factors at play that it all kind of comes out in the wash. To be clear, Professor Taiwo's critique is not with the principles of identity politics, but with how they're practiced. He calls this practice of centering the marginalized identity or listening to the most affected in the room deference politics. And he thinks we should go away from deference politics and towards an alternative, what he calls constructive politics. Constructive politics is politics where we focus on what changes that we're trying to make to the structure of the laws or maybe the, the, the literal structures. Maybe we're trying to get a bridge built or a school built or a hospital built. And we let those fights be the organizing principle for how we organize ourselves politically, right? So maybe the relevant group isn't people of this nationality versus people of that nationality. Maybe the relevant group is the people who want the hospital built in this community I think, or at least I hope, you know, that's a way of thinking about politics that will be less gameable by slick political operators. The question should be, what is it that we can actually build for our families, for our kids, for our neighbors? And whoever is going to do that with us is on the team, or at least potentially on the team. When we come back, should companies even have DEI committees? That's coming up on Imperfect Paradise. I want to tell you about a new podcast called Reimagining Democracy for a Good Life. We all know about the threats to democracy, how things can and have gone wrong. 
But there's something happening in LA that offers hope. Organizers building across differences and divisions, a movement born out of deep struggle. What can LA teach the nation about building a radically inclusive, thriving multiracial democracy? Find out on Reimagining Democracy for a Good Life, hosted by longtime equity advocate Angela Glover Blackwell. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Support for LAist comes from FX's Shogun. Set in Japan in the year 1600, Lord Yoshi Toronaga is fighting for his life as his enemies unite against him when a mysterious European ship is found marooned in a nearby fishing village. Its English pilot, John Blackthorne, comes bearing secrets that could tip the balance of power. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada, Cosmo Jarvis, and Anna Sawai, Shogun is available for your Emmy consideration at fxnetworks.com FYC. We're back. We're talking with Professor Olufemi Taiwo about his book, Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else. He's a big proponent of a solution he's coined called constructive politics, organizing around a goal, like building a hospital in an area that doesn't have enough quality health care, rather than organizing around one's own identity. And I'm still thinking about how he said he doesn't think it's important that leaders, even an elected politician, shares the same identity as their constituents. But what about the leadership and mission of a larger organization? Is there a way constructive politics can be adopted by those big organizations that doesn't result in just a few powerful elites co-opting the work? In one of our series on Imperfect Paradise, we follow the story of one hobbyist magician who falls in and out of love with secretive private club and performance space, the Magic Castle. When you walk in and you feel like you're being transported somewhere else, there's a cool part of that, that you're immersed in a magical environment. Carly Usden quickly realized that the Magic Castle was not as diverse or welcoming as they had initially hoped. And then there's a terrible part of that that you're kind of like shoved back many years into this like very hetero white patriarchal environment. The older white cis heterosexual male members, they acted like it was their playground they were disappointed in how the Magic Castle responded to serious concerns raised by some of its members, especially around gender equity, harassment, and even assault. I felt like I had been really quiet and essentially complicit in some of this garbage for a while, and I hit a breaking point. I wanted to talk to Professor Taiwo about how important it is that, say, the Academy of Magical Arts, which is the nonprofit that runs the Magic Castle, prioritize DEI, starting from the top. It's leadership. How important do you think it is that, let's say, a nonprofit hires diversely? I do think it does probably communicate on some level a commitment to anti-racism to at least consider a diverse applicant pool. And that should probably translate into hiring diversely. So I don't want to, you know, again, I don't want to overcorrect and, you know, and just start advocating, no, like bring back all white nonprofits or whatever. All that I'm trying to get on the table is like keeping that practical stuff in view. Right? Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, the nonprofit's supposed to do something. It's supposed to address food insecurity and promote food sovereignty. It's supposed to uh, promote housing justice. It's supposed to advocate for workers. Does it do that effectively? Right. And how do we cultivate a politics where that is the primary question rather than kind of subsuming that question, burying that question under questions of optics. 
I think part of the reason why the book feels so pressing is there there was this big push, especially after the George Floyd murder, for like all of these companies to set up DEI committees. Do you think that company like from the leadership can be part of constructive politics? I think a corporation that voluntarily extended union recognition to workers that was that were organizing would be doing something better than the curve. Bargain in good faith with your employees is maybe the best thing that a corporation could contribute. I think that's a fairly far cry from the current strategy, which is to appoint a DEI advisor to host the occasional workshop and make sure that two women are appointed to the suite of 80 executives or whatever. Um, That seems to be the going approach, and I don't see what much, if anything, that has to do with anti-racism or gender justice or whatever else. It's very interesting to me that Professor Taiwo believes unions can do more to advance the cause of creating more equity and inclusion than DEI committees. We're really going to dive into unions in our next Imperfect Paradise series. He's also saying that if it's not the mission of the Magic Castle to have a diverse and inclusive club, if they don't see it as benefiting the organization or its bottom line overall, then the DEI committee is basically moot. But also, it's not impossible for an organization to decide that inclusivity is important and put meaningful effort and resources into that work. I read this book during a vacation, underlining every other paragraph. But it's dawning on me during this interview that maybe I was not the target reader for this book. Did you have an audience in mind for the book? Yeah, I mean, basically, the the people that I wanted to read it most were organizers. I did have those people centrally in mind because I think, you know, those are the those are the people that have to win if politics is going to work any differently. You know, I think it's nice to have kind of mass support of general public opinion, but it's action that gets the goods. And are you annoyed by non-organizers who are like, tell us all of the other things? <laughs> yeah, I'm not annoyed by non-organizers. The response that I find most interesting is the breadth of kinds of organizations that seem to have read it and thought that, you know, it was worth talking about amongst themselves, right? I've gotten contacted by unions thinking about this. I've gotten contacted by both like nonprofit workers and nonprofit leadership activists who concentrate more on direct action sorts of things. And I've gotten contacted by people who run community libraries and community archives and all these groups of people, at least on their telling, see the kind of dynamics that I was doing my best to describe in their organizations, they found it a useful springboard to start talking. And I didn't really expect that. This book is relatable and applicable to anyone, really, who's grappling with how to create a more equitable world. What I took away is that it's not just about who is at the table or who gets to talk at the table, but what are the issues that have brought us to the table to begin with? That is part of the tension and struggle we examine on Imperfect Paradise. I think that's what we should focus on when thinking about the impact of the LA City Council tape scandal. How real change can be addressed in the Magic Castle. 
And what I ask myself as a journalist when we think about what topics we explore on this show. Next week on Imperfect Paradise, an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. The club that reopened as the only unionized strip club in the U.S. We just had a lot of love for each other. And we solidified that the only way we're going to be able to do something is if we organize together. A look at the secret and messy work of unionizing. This episode of Imperfect Paradise was produced by me, Antonia Cerejido. I'm the show's host. Catherine Milhouse is the executive producer of the show, and Sheena Naomi Crockmall is our vice president of podcasts. Editing by Catherine Milhouse and Shana Crockmall. Our team also includes Emily Guerin, Natalie Chudnovsky, and Emma Alabaster. Mixing by Donald Paz. Original music by E. Scott Kelly. This podcast is powered by listeners like you. Support this show by donating now at las.com slash join. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. One event can change a family for generations. I'm Emily Kwong, host of a new podcast from LAS Studios called Inheriting. It's about Asian American and Pacific Islander families and their histories. Join me for an immersive storytelling event at the Crawford in Pasadena. It's June 27th. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events.